coming up on the Inspired Podcast. Probably the worst father-son relationship you could have. My memory of it is like a poster of a man like in Midnight Express. You know, he, he didn't deal with things in a way that I would have liked because I don't need to prove to my father or to myself to be a better person. Welcome to the Inspired Podcast by Gentech. My name is Nick Jones and what I love about making these podcasts is that I get to speak to people that really inspire me with stories of how against all odds they have overcome adversity and really met the challenges thrown at them head on. Today I'm speaking to Adrian Simon. Adrian is an author but he's also known for being the son of convicted drug trafficker Warren Fellows. Warren's story was made famous in the book called The Damage Done. Many of you will have read The Damage Done. It's a book that details the 12 years of hell in a Bangkok prison that Warren went through. I actually read this book in Thailand where it was set whilst I was recovering after the 99 Mr Universe competition. It was recommended to me by my friend Dennis James. Dennis is a former Mr. Universe and a successful professional bodybuilder. I found the book shocking and incredibly moving. I also just read Adrian's book, Milk Blood, which tells his side of the story. Growing up in suburban Australia, the son of two unconventional parents. One being an infamous convicted drug trafficker. The other an unconventional yet resilient mother. In reading Milk Blood, I felt I had a lot in common with Adrian. We're both children of single-parent families from a time when it was not common. We both lived in the same places around Australia and the UK. I feel very grateful to speak to Adrian today as his father, Warren, has only just recently passed away. Adrian, welcome to Inspired. To kick things off, do you remember visiting your father in Bangkok prison when you were just two and a half years of age? I can't remember being inside the prison. I do talk about being in the prison. I patch that together with uh, research and talking to my mum and yeah. painting a storyline that sort of depicts just how graphic and you know immensely traumatic um, a young child visiting you know a father who was to be executed with a mother in a very dangerous and wild environment. You know mm. the, the, there aren't too many worse places really, but um, I did visit him a couple of times in inside those. Awful places. And you do vaguely remember it. Yeah, a couple of things in Bangkok and Thailand. It's very colourful. So for me, mm. as a child, the uh, the visuals come to mind of mm. bustling streets and the tuk-tuks and yes. the loud noises and the fragrances and the things that do yes. bring memory. Like, it's amazing when I first started writing this, I sat down, I mapped it out, I, I saw my whole life and the stories that could put that all together. And um, then I thought, oh, God, like, Where's it coming from? Like, where's this going to come from? And, and so seeing and feeling Bangkok, the start, really, like, opened up my mind into, you know, what those memories were. And it just released me being able to write for nearly a year. But I was engaged in the process of putting this book together and I had to do it. Mm. And so I just had never written anything substantial before. Mm. I was not bad. I could tell a story and I'd learnt from travelling around and, you know, dealing with um, my father's book when I was trying to, you know, sort of propose some TV film stuff. So I, I got an understanding of storytelling. Yes. Um, yeah, and then just one thing led to another. But him in the prison, you know, now I can see it very vividly in my mind because I wrote about it and yes. it's quite powerful, um, that depiction. 
Did your mum, Jan, help you visualise how it was as well? Do you speak to her about it? Oh, yeah, she told me she gave me a great insight into mm. not only what she was dealing with externally, mm. but she was a targeted woman, you know, because, you know, he was international news. Yes. This man had done a very bad thing in the eyes of the Australian public and yes. the international press. Yes. They were making a big deal out of it. This mm. is the first big international Westerner that was done offshore mm. and they were going to ram it home. So... Yeah, it wasn't easy for her to even get into the prison. It took us eight hours, I think, to even be allowed into the front gate. Mm. So we're waiting outside the front gate and it was, you know, Thailand's hot, humid. I'm a young child, I was two and a half, you know, a bit older actually. But, yeah, it was difficult. But, yeah, to answer your question, Mum told me essentially, you know, what was going down in and around that. Yes. And then, you know, everything goes into your own mind and you visualise it yourself and so, you know, whether it's entirely 100% what it was, mm. you know, time goes past, the, the brain sort of creates what it was, but the story was true. That got me straight away in your book because I'd read Warren's book, The Damage Done, your father's book, and, and not once, like I said, do you think about, did this guy have a wife? Did he have children? You know, did he have a son? Did he have parents? How did it affect them? In-laws, how did it affect them? So you don't think about it until... That so it was so engaging. The start of your book, it got me from the scene that you set in Bangkok. And again, because I've been I've been there a number of times, so I can understand the smells and the humidity and the hustle and bustle. And yeah. um, jumping ahead, when you were just nine years old, so I'm I'm going. I know I'm triggering triggering <laughs> your memory, and I hope it's not it's too traumatic. But um, but it, there was so much in milk blood that that resonated with me. But you were just nine years old. So again, I think of when I was nine. You were watching a current affair type of show with your mum and your mm. grandfather, Colin. Yep. Uh, and a man came on the screen. He was being interviewed. You didn't know, but the energy in the room changed. Obviously, your grandfather wasn't a fan of your father. Your mum in the morning explained to you that was your father last night. Up until that time, what had you told people about your father? And what did you think and who did you think your father was? And where was he? Because you didn't know at that time that that was your father and he was in prison in a Thai prison for smuggling heroin, did you? What did you know up until that time or think? Interesting question because part of me always knew something really bad happened. And right. as I just said in the last question, I did go to Thailand. There was leftover memories of some extreme experiences. But I think when you're a kid, you sort of, you, you mould, your brain's just absorbing new information, you develop new senses and cognitively growing. So I think a few years after that happened and I started becoming more aware of myself, a four, five, six-year-old. Obviously, life was challenging around me, but I was still, my mum protected me, my grandparents protected me so well that I was at school and, you know, I was living like a kid's life. But there was always tension and there was always media and there was police and different things. So Always for that many years after? Years and years. Really? Yeah, yeah in different ways, in different ways. Right. I always knew that life was strange and, you know, I, I wasn't an easy kid. Well, you weren't like the other kids at school. Didn't have the no. mum and dad and they didn't have police and media hanging around. And <laughs> When I did see him on the news, it wasn't surprising. Like, there was a link in my brain that figured that this was the moment that I understood that this guy in front of me, not in my brain, was going, this is my father. But I kind of knew, mm. if that makes any sense. Yes. 
And the the room, I remember it perfectly. You know, my grandfather's sitting there, and he took control on a Sunday. It was he was a very strict, straight English gentleman, and very smart. But he was always watching his news, and that's what we did together. And it came on, and was straight away. It wasn't like an intro storyline. We're going to the prison and having a look. My father was there, blurred out face, hands gripping bars, and they sort of, I don't know, he couldn't distort his voice, but. He was, like, I could just tell the intensity of this man and it was just grubby. Like my memory of it is like a poster of a man like in Midnight Express. Yes. And so one part of the room just went deadly tornado silent. <laughs> I know that's a contradiction. Yeah. But there was like fury and silence. And then on my mother's side, just I could just feel her going, holy shit, this is never going to end. Yeah. Never going to end. But did I, little did I know the tension between my mother and my grandfather. They both walked out, mm. like after it finished. Mm. And, you know, I'm sitting there just realising this is, this is it. It was coming to a head. Mm. And it, it never got away from me because I, I was told years later, and I was, I'm so headstrong and I realised that I determined myself and I never let, well, I try to think, I never let uh, the outside influences direct. Later in life, in my late 30s, saw a psychologist who defined why I did this. Mm. When I was a child, like up three to nine, mm. I fictionalised my father to people because he was absent. Yes, yes. He wasn't around and he was very far away. Mm. And different times, like, you know, back then, the family stuck together. Parents stayed together, even if they hated each other. I was the only single child. So I'd go off to families, dinners, parties, things like kids do. But the questions were always asked. Where's your father? Who's your father? What's your father doing? Blah, blah, blah. I'd tell them amazing things like, oh, well, he's a New York stock exchange banker. He's a ski instructor at in Switzerland because <laughs> my mum smoked St. Marit's cigarettes. Yeah, you know, yeah. I can see the <laughs> outline. I was like, well, he's going to be over there. Yeah. He's the killing ups. it. And then... <laughs> The other one, he was like in the Air Force. Mm. But he was this very go-getting alpha male kind of figure that was heroic and protective and doing all these things that a child sort of looks up to in a male figure. Mm. And this is what I'm getting at. Years later when I saw this psychologist, he just said, well, that's quite common for children that have had traumatic experiences and an absent parent. You know, Mm. they fictionalise to protect themselves. Mm. So what happened is, you know, you create an illusion to protect yourself from the reality. But my story always changed. So yeah, no, one ever, yeah. never, no one ever got it. <laughs> when they, you know, Did you tell different you stories to the same person? Being trained well. Yeah, yeah, far <laughs> out. But you're protected as well. So you, you know, you're, like you're saying, your grandfather Colin and your mum Jan protected you from it. And, yeah. And well, it changed my identity. Yeah, was your surname Fellows when you were born yeah. on your birth certificate? Yep. It was. Yeah. So when did you change your name? Well, your mum changed it, I'm assuming. Uh, when I was seven. Gotcha. So, yeah, I think because we moved around a bit. So I was, I think it was when we were starting to really settle. We moved back into my um, grandfather's place in Sydney. And yes. that's when mum and him wanted me to have a stable schooling experience. So that's when, okay, well, now we're going to be here, stay in the one suburb, hopefully, mm. and we'll change his identity because not only can kids be cruel, but parents and teachers, I found out, certainly like to dig. Yeah. Yeah. So I became a bit invisible. Mm. And what a task that when I look back and go, how is that even possible given the nature of what happened? Mm. You know, my mum my did an extraordinary job. Yeah. You know, of protecting me from that. 
Yeah, I got that from your book, actually, like the strength and hardworking nature of your mum, the determination by your grandfather to give you a stable upbringing and for him to be that role model for you. He knew, he could tell, and he, although their relationship wasn't great, your grandfather and his daughter and your, and your mum, they both played these roles. They dedicated themselves to you. Mm. That's, that's how it came across in the book. Is that true? Yeah, well, like if I break down their personality, they're completely opposite. But one thing that binds them together is that I don't think, well, my mum has the the most resilience that I've ever known of a person. Wow. But my grandfather always trained in me because he he went to the Second World War. He was a a veteran. You know, he saw battles, lost friends, um, grew up in a time where, you know, his parents were old and he grew up in an abandoned train sort of thing. So they had a different life. Wow. But he always said... You know, you, you judge by your character of your internal fortitude and your strength to, as I said before, manage your own affairs and keep uh, a straight line for yourself. What age did you pick up on that teaching? Very young. Well, I had wow. to. There was no time to waste, really. I couldn't be a loose kid Yeah. that was going to sit around and, and fall apart over that. Even I fell apart many different times, but of course. I pulled it together. But, yeah. you know, for the majority of it, that education... And plus, I, I, I am that sort of way. I, I like to think, um, you know, in this day and age, it's a bit different, but I always saw a masculine figure as being that way, mm. you know, quite strong-minded, never impart your problems onto others, just yes. keep it together, yep. be a gentleman, have yes. manners, and just live your life, do the right thing, yes. and get on with it. And that was yeah. my take on all that. And that's, I think, when you were saying that, um, don't put your problems on others and don't talk, that's a very English thing as well, keep it a stiff is. upper lip. Yeah. You know, that's what they'll say, keep a stiff upper lip. My family, English, English and Welsh. So I certainly get that, and they don't talk much. They don't open up yeah. um, about the past and their struggles and what they went through. But, you know, in this day and age, Adrian, Adrian I find it um, so important, and that's why we're doing the Inspired Podcast, is because people do need to hear um, our struggles so they can associate with our struggles. And um, But, you know, and it's that fine balance, isn't it, between being very vulnerable and talking about your emotions and your feelings, um, but the, you know, and that self-love and that self-nourishment that we need, we need to love ourselves, but then there's that, that hardness that we also need where you just gotta keep plowing through. You just yeah. gotta get up, lace up your shoes and get out there and do your best, you know, no matter what or how you're feeling, it's a real fine balance, isn't it? And I think we have different balances at different stages of our lives. With, yes. Again, different challenges. Mm. So, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the, the, for me, writing a book, I was speaking to this person the other day who read these books and just goes, wow, you just really opened and put it out there, but, you know, like a cool way. And, you know, I thought, well, that's it. It's much easier if, well, for me to dump a whole lot of emotions and experiences on paper rather than necessarily, you know, get a bunch of my friends around and... and let them digest in my problems, really. Mm. So I can be separate from it because it's um, subjective to other people. But I was always mindful that I wanted to maintain that discipline within myself that, you know, at the end of it, you've got to look after yourself. No one, as you say, is going to do your laces up for you. Yeah. And if people keep doing your laces up for you, you end up having no experience in life and you're just the pushover. Exactly. And I have no sort of respect for that mm. for myself. Mm. Uh, and... The older I get, the more I realise just how, this sounds pessimistic, but just how uh, alone and meaningless our own desperation and, and depressions can be in bad times because we don't, 
we waste a lot of time in in that uh, mess that we can create for ourselves without having the tools. And I don't want to get wishy-washy, but to be able no. to draw ourselves back in to keep that straight line to know that things will work out. Mm. Like, life gets really bad. It does. Mm. It gets really, like, hellish. Yeah. And I've seen and witnessed it, especially both what my parents went through, just, and my people, like, even my grandfather in the war. Like, we have very good these days. Yes. We're very safe and cushioned environments to, to grow and, and learn from. But, yeah, it gets me going. It's one of those things, I think... You know, yeah. we've got to be able to pull it together ourselves. It's and essential because no one, yeah. as an adult, no one's going to do it for you. I don't, I'm not a fan of people that are um, always looking for sympathy or you don't putting, play the victim. No, I can th- see that this this victimized society nowadays is really overly promoted, and mm. it, I think it weakens person's resilience mm. and understanding mm. because we now see. It's easy to call someone, and I hate these terms, it's so easy to use it, but, oh, he gaslighted me or she gaslighted me or they did this at work and I didn't like it and you know, blah, 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 and you think, okay, there are people out there. Like, I grew up, unfortunately, my father was a A-class narcissist and a right. top order of it, right? Mm-hmm. And I've been gaslit in a massive stage by him my whole life. Massive. Massively. Um, he's still my biological father and I love him, but, you know, there's that side of me that just despises him for that. But I think now society is allowing people to use really their own insecurities to protect themselves against like growing Mm. or or owning up to things or doing the right thing. Build a lean athletic physique using Gentech Nutrition's premium quality sports supplements. Use code INSPIRED10 and save 10% off your favourite products at gentech.com.au. That's G-E-N Welcome back to Inspired and our chat with author Adrian Simon. I asked Adrian what were other coping mechanisms he used while growing up. Well, for me, I was a very energetic child and sport was my driving motivation to uh, ignore certain aspects of what was going on around me. Yes. So sport, and it's not for everyone obviously, but it gave me a physical outlet that made me exhausted for yes. one. So yes. exercise for me has always been a way to calm my mind yes. or if I've got a bit of pain in the brain, mm-hmm. I like to say, it's, um, it, it soothes it. Um, when I was nine, back to what you're saying before, when I found my father on television, I had a nervous breakdown. When I was creating illusions about where my father was, when I saw him on television and and my mother the next day told me, you know, son, this is your father, he did a bad thing, and he's in a bad place and, you know, he's not coming back and this is just the way it is. Um, my mind collapsed because I had a an illusion turn into a sudden disillusion. Yes. And so as a kid, the cognitive uh, understanding uh, sort of imploded and I became obsessed on thoughts and those thoughts became so erratic. So... OTD is not widely known. Mm. It's linked to OCD or anxiety disorders. Mm. So when you see people with OCD, they keep vacuuming and they're cleaning and they keep things straight and tidy. Mm. That's what I needed in my brain. So I would think something and usually it would be quite violent Mm. um, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. It was just constant and it was threatening and it was present and it was scary. And at that age, you'd think, I just didn't know what to do. Mm. 
and went through a series of tests. No one could help me. The doctors said, well, look, you know, they thought my life was could have been over, mm. you know, the way that was going. Whether it be, Jeez. not for me dying all of a sudden, but, you know, 14 years old with a father in a Thai prison, I could have ended up being one of those kids on the street pretty easily. Mm. Fortunately, my mum was never going to allow that, nor my grandfather. But towards the end of it, I was introduced to cognitive behavioural therapy, which was from a child psychologist that gave me meditational uh, practices. Wow. So, and this is at 14? No, this is at nine. This is at nine. Well, still, it was a bit yeah. after. It was, so it was about a year and a half. Gotcha. Maybe 10, 10 and a half. So did you try a few different therapists and come up uh, with this there one? There weren't or? many, yeah. I mean, I can't remember all of them. I think yeah. a lot of them just kind of just didn't know what to do. There was, wow. like, n nowadays, they just medicate kids, right? They just, like, yeah. drug them up and try to, like, soothe their, their mind with pharmaceuticals. But yes. For me, I remember it was looking at, because I had really violent thoughts, and mm. I didn't want to act on them. Mm. You know, my my mum had to take, you know, knives and forks out of the drawers and stuff because I could just strike. And wow. My target was her, basically, because she was the one that told me my father was in a Thai prison, so yes. I had a disillusion. On top of those illusions, it gets very psychological and wow. just, you know, when you break it down. But with this lady who taught me about the meditation, well, she, it's, it's crazy because the answer is it's not a problem in the mind. You're allowed to think what you ever want. Like as soon as you start thinking it's a problem, it's when it becomes a problem. Right. So that's the easiest way I can sort of deal with it. Wow. And as an adult and as a person who experienced that, I think to myself, well, I entertain anything I want in my mind now. It's in, inside my own skull. Mm -hmm. No one needs to know anything. Mm -hmm. Right? It happens. Good and bad. Yes. Right? That's reality. That's my reality anyway. Absolutely. But I and know you can change it as an adult. You know, you can change your thought. Thoughts can be changed. Completely. But back then you couldn't change these no. thoughts. No, no. Yeah, so I had to confront it. So it's, it's a contradiction of looking at the violence, the, the imagery. So this lady was in a nice peaceful room. There'd be a beautiful painting on the wall. It was, you know, I think it was a mountain setting. And she would guide me. And so it was like hypnotherapy to a degree where she'd count me down, letting me relax, just let the mind go because I was so overly charged mentally yes. that I just needed to just chill and she would then say, now, go to that place. When I, now I was not looking at the picture, I was looking inside my mind, and she'd guide me through. And it, for me, it was a tropical beach, scenery, beautiful place. But then I'd be confronted with these violent images. images and she would say to me, that's okay. You know, see it, take it, it's there, it's not going to harm you. you know, accept it, and keep going further into, like, now a jungle. And then I'd find... So it was like a little... You know, adventure. Yes. But it was, to me, a very threatening and dangerous one. <laughs> mm. But at the end, it was like, now I've come out of that, you know, take those thoughts, take them somewhere. In my mind, it was like these birds would fly over and they'd drop these thoughts into a volcano to never come back. Mm. So as a 10-year-old, that was feasible. Like I was like living in kind of like a Disney version of, yes, you know, having chronic brain problems. <laughs> yes, yes, psychological. <laughs> but then later in yeah. life, and, and it, it lagged with me for a few years, like I finally got new thoughts coming through, but through the, the bulk of high school, probably till I was about 15, 16, they started really tapering off. Mm. Um, things could trigger it and I'd know it would happen. I'd have a bit of an episode and I'd be a bit weird for a while with people and I'd just go harder at sport. You know, I'd like punch myself really in the face at it, you know? Yes. Um, and I was good at sport. Thankfully, it was my outlet. It was what I had. Yeah. I wasn't, and it was wasn't gymnastics and cricket, wasn't it? And rugby. And rugby, at, that's at right. Stage. Yes. Yeah, so I was, I, was, I was an action kid. 
There's no doubt about it. Mm. Now I limp around and I'm busted, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can always train up a body. And I've got to <laughs> say, to this day, I'm 50 years old and I'm a former champion bodybuilder, yeah. but um, to this day, training is like therapy for me many days. It yeah. is therapy. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. And, and, uh, and it's funny, like many, many disciplines, there are many days where you just don't feel like going. You just don't. And it's like doing up your shoes. Just, what I say is, just show up. Yep. Just show up. If you get there, you start doing a little bit. Before you know it, 45 minutes later, you walk out of there feeling at peace with all these endorphins flowing through. So to me, I get it with exercise. I associate it with that in your book. Yeah. And, um, and I wanted you to tell us about the hypnotherapy there because mm. you described mm. it so well in Milk Blood. Mm. I thought it's fascinating. They're, they're things that I had experience with as well. Yeah. So um, do, you still, do you still utilize those tools today? Well, I do. I think they form if I ever need to fall back on. Mm. Yeah, you know, like sometimes I might get a bit lazy, and, and life goes off, and you know different challenges present themselves, especially with relationships and things. And exactly when emotions come into it, it's, that's it's, the it's a different thing, thing to deal with. You know, yeah, that's the love. Yes. So it's hard to sort of pull yourself back in on, on that front, but on a personal page, definitely. Yeah, mm. I think they're formed in me now. Like I and plus. Once I realised that I didn't have those problems, that they were manufactured. Yes. Um, I've got different problems now. But like yes. The, um... yeah, of course. That never ends. <laughs> that never ends, right? And yeah. I think that's something that you have to come to the realisation of as well, isn't it? It's, it's um, we will continue to get lessons and we'll continue to get challenges. I look at my life and these challenges, and relationships are yeah. always the hardest, yeah. but I always look at them like I look at weight training. Weight training is a stress that we put on the muscles and the adaptation, or what happens then, is our muscles grow and become stronger. So without the stress, muscles atrophy. They don't get mm, stronger. Mm. We need some stress in order to become stronger and to grow. Absolutely, yeah. And we just got, it's going to keep happening. So to have these tools mm. is of paramount importance well, for all of us, right? God, completely, and that's what I was suggesting before. I think um, the way the youth today possibly are educated and protected from maybe learning some of these stresses mm. is a bit of a detriment. I'm not an expert by any means, but I see how um, uncapable uh, parts of society is becoming yes. to handle certain problems. Yes. And I think, like you say, like you do need, we're animals. It's like in the jungle, like we're meant to survive and yeah. you've got to be prepared to survive. And I think back to your, one of your original questions with me, with my grandfather, he was saying to me very early on, look, son, the world's going to spit you out if you can't be prepared. You know, you're young, you've got to deal with this. And when he was a kid, you know, he was looking out for himself. Yeah. You know, and then he went to war. Yes. You know, and then he walked 50Ks to and from work. Like, different story, but inbuilt resilience. Yes. And I think it needs to be passed down because it becomes, like, mentally, it's like you say, physically, you're doing your upper body training and, and you're doing it regularly and you're conditioned. So mentally, uh don't like the word spiritually, but it it forms part of our neurological connectivity to be able to handle certain problems the more you experience. Yes, yes. Some people flit out and lose it and they can't handle it. They mm. take drugs and end up becoming criminals or, you know, they overdose or they just lose it mm. and they can't handle. Yes. Um, and that's just reality. Yeah. Like people... You know, you can't pick and choose. They didn't get any tools. They turned, uh, like you say, with young people, you know, kids with medicating them these days, if you oppress these feelings and these issues with, um, 
you know, if self-medication, whether it's drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, you know, uh, yep. you're never going to get the chance to build that resilience that your grandfather instilled in you, right? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, and then you, like you just pointed out a few good examples. I mean, the older you get, then you do experience all those things like the drugs and the sex and the rock and roll and the travelling and the, the learning the new things. And, and that's a whole set of different circumstances where you've got to contain yourself in and around all those possible addictions yes. that can lead you into whole different like pathways in life. And that's where you have those moments where you could go in any direction. Absolutely. And that comes back to that straight line of learning You know what motivates you to keep it together for yes. yourself because everyone has a different version of that. Yes. And at different times. Yes. And that's important. And you're right, like it is a conditioning thing. And I, I believe it's like uh, anything. If It's like when I was younger, like I would throw a cricket ball or a golf ball or a tennis ball against a wall mm. day in, day out. Yes. And to me, I was unbeatable. Mm. Like I could catch anything. Mm. And I, I can still do it. Like someone, something happened the other day and I just surprised myself and went, oh, God, still got it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, not blowing my own trumpet, but it's there. Yes. Yep. So it is Half-lights. that conditioning. And I think humans... We need to, like some people are fortunate, they can pick up things very quickly, but if we just pound into ourselves something for a long period of time, then we become it. Yes, just We're, rock up and do it. Just that's rock right. up. And that's the discipline, isn't it? It's yeah. either sitting around feeling sorry for yourself or sitting around eating potato chips and sitting on the couch just to, to make that decision to just rock up, just yeah. take some action. Yeah. And that's the, um, it's that window, isn't it? That's that window where your true fortitude is built, where that true self-esteem comes from, that true self-confidence and that self-discipline that comes from just that opportunity. It's a little mm. window, isn't mm. it? Mm. It's that little window. You sit, feel sorry for yourself, lock yourself away and curl up into the fetal position, or you just push yourself to take that bit of action. It's, it's, it's I don't think humans are meant to be lazy. Uh, we've got to have purpose and we're meant yes. to do things. And it's, you know, the, the worst I ever can be is if I just sit around. Yes. And if I'm not doing something or like during COVID, I like, honestly, I could have joined a militia group and fled the country. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, I've got bad knees and I can't run properly. But, <laughs> so you're here. Good. You know, it's like, I'm glad you got, didn't. Got to be doing stuff. Yeah. Um, being proactive. And it's, I don't want to be cliche with things, but it's, it's easy to, um, we've got a very comfortable lifestyle these days. Mm. And I don't know, us. I think when it comes to headspace, depression, mental illnesses. We all go through different mental illnesses at different stages in our life, whether it be just a highly stressed environment situation. You believe that? Everyone goes through them. Oh, completely. I agree. Everyone. I agree. Yeah. I've got to say I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's well. No, no matter how easy you think it looks like someone's got it, Yeah. you don't know what's going on inside. Oh, completely, yeah. No, I, I'm a full supporter of that. And I think you'd be, I don't know, sociopathic if you didn't yes right <laughs> it'd be something that was missing yes. mentally yes yeah it's that widespread and that calm everyone yeah. goes through it well it's important i mean i don't know why talking about analogies earlier like if you went down the beach just down the road and the surf was a bit wild and you hadn't been swimming for a bit or you're a traveler and you just jumped in the ocean you got tossed about and crawled back on the sand you'd realize well wow that was a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What am I going to do with that? I'm not going back out there like that. No way. Yep. Yep. I'm either not going out till it calms down a bit or, or I'll prepare myself. Yeah, well, you'll I know for next that. time. Yeah, yeah, I can swim. I can swim. I can surf. G'day. This is Adrian Simon. We're listening to the Inspired Podcast. Get exclusive access to the Workout Club. 
at gentech.com.au. That's G-E-N hyphen T-E-C dot com.au. And use code INSPIRED10 to save 10% off your favourite products site-wide. For the final part of our chat with author Adrian Simon, I ask him, does he believe in a life after death? Well, my father just passed away about six weeks ago. It was a long time coming. He, um, he, he was sick with a terminal lung disease, progressive lung disease, which they don't have long. It's like two or three years. Yes. But um, so it was, it was coming. But I think when it happens, obviously, you, you think about you know, what happens, that transition, if there is one, if they slide into something else. Uh, my grandmother, I always remember telling my mother that um, because she had cancer for decades and she had an experience where she passed away, one of those stories that you do hear about where they leave their body and they can experience the people around them and listen to conversations and, you know, they have that light moment. So whether or not that's the mind processing, I mean, I think it's a bit more than that. I've had many different experiences in my life where, you know, I communicate to my grandfather and my grandparents and, you know, I have those conversations, whether it to be to myself to to find myself um, answering my own questions or whether they are there, but there are things that, uh, you can't explain and do come across that I think could be from past relatives or people that um, help us in different ways. But I don't really know. I'd like to think there is. The more, the older I get, the less I'm convinced that you know. There's certainly not this utopian heaven kind of scenario in my view, my version. But the the world and the universe is a very complicated and amazing place, and I think. The energy that forms within us, whether it be from within a human or from an animal or a plant, that um, it remains and we recycle. And I think, I'd like to think our embodiment of our soul remains because that impression, there's so much energy of a life that it, it, can't, it can't just disappear. Whether it is just given back to the, the world, I'm not sure. But I, I'd like to think that, you know, whatever it is, you know, that I can still see the people that I talk to if I need to, you know, in a physical presence. And there are unexplainable things. You know, my father, you know, there's just weird things. Weird things happen. So when he passed away, he got cremated on the same day my grandfather, Colin, was born. Wow. He was like, well, that's a bit, how's it going? I mean, I know my grandfather hated him. Yeah. But, um... Then, but they were connected. They, yeah, connect, they were connected in this lifetime. They were connected. My grandfather didn't mind getting a tip at the races off him, though. Oh, did he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. Because yeah. your dad, he was a bookie. One was a bookie yeah, he was before a bookie, he got busted, yeah. wasn't well, his he? Grandfather, well, my grandfather, his father won the Melbourne Cup as a jockey. Yes, I read so, that. Three, yeah. Was it three times? Did I read that correctly? No, he, he won uh, once, but he, he won the Caulfield Cup. It was a different name back then. The Melbourne Cup and the other big group one race in the same carnival wow. on the same horse. Which wow. hasn't been repeated. Getting back to your to your dad, uh, so your grandfather he didn't have a lot to do with, but your dad, I'm really fascinated about your relationship with your dad. So when he when he got pardoned and came out of prison, you know how how hard was it reconnecting with him, but then how hard was your relationship with your dad? I mean, you know that's. I, I thank, I'm so thankful that you gained so many of the tools that you did at a young age, I think, to deal with your relationship from what I'm interpreting in your book, Milk Blood. Can you tell me about that? How tough was it reconnecting with your dad? Tell me about your relationship with him. 
probably the worst father-son relationship you could have. Like, to be honest, it was yes, terrible. Yeah. It was bloody awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there was yeah. nothing really great about it. I mean, I, it's easy to say that. Like, you look at the negatives, and I always try to draw on the positives. And mm. there was part of me, because he was absent for the first 16 years of my life, but apart from when I was a child and, you know, I was in his arms until he got arrested at 18 months, um, I had images of him as a very healthy, successful kind of guy and mm. good-looking magazine qualities and, you know, the world at his feet. Mm. So I saw that in my mind, but when I... Which could, was the image. That was the that physical was his, image of him, him before he got busted, wasn't and it? he was. He was a smooth character. He was very charismatic and gifted with words and he could write. You know, he, he had skills. Mm. So I always looked at, you know, the that nice side of him. But he was arrested for smuggling heroin, right? And he was doing bad shit for a long time. Yes. And, you know, obviously spending time in a tight prison, he became a chronic heroin addict and he'd take any drug under the sun. You know, mm. he, he went through awful shit. Yep. And self-imposed a lot of it. Yes. Uh, you know, 12 years in a tight prison is going to mess you up. Yep. Big time. Yeah. Regardless, I mean... It was, you could never really fully recover from that, right? It's like a leap of time. Mm. You know, he, he came out, like, I know from my father, he came out and... There's mobile phones or the, that sort of thing. It's like yes. the life has so dramatically changed in X amount of time mm. that uh, it's like a time warp and they're stuck before they enter the prison. But plus plus the the um, torture and, and, and experiences they had in prison, like the yeah. PTSD, that, that, must have, yeah. that must have been a thing. Well, it is. I mean, it is. It is. Look, this, it's complicated. There's a lot in this question mm. about... Uh, yeah. my relationship with my father obviously he wasn't there and when I did see him I was a teenager and I was 16 and because I, he was released when I was 14 by the King's Pardon as you mentioned and he wasn't allowed to see me upon release because the judge had legally kept him away because he could have he came out with HIV he was hep C he was a heroin addict he could have bitten me in the view of sure. people. Like, he was mentally not right. Yes. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, he's not right coming out of... If you've read his stories and what's in there, guy's damaged, right? Yeah, it's got it makes damage sense, done, but you right? don't think about you it. You don't think. It and, sense. you know, he, he just wasn't... wasn't right mm. in that space. So when I did see him in all, all these places, like, I couldn't believe it. And years later, I was telling a, um, a fellow writer about... I went to meet my father in Oxford Street, Sydney, in a place called the Courthouse, Courthouse Hotel. Is that right? Mm, I think so. That was in the book, yeah. yeah. And the bar inside is called the Judgment Bar, right? Yes. I didn't piece it together at the time, but I, I remember now I look back and go, you've got to be kidding, right? So there's my old man. For the first time that I've seen him since when I was a child in the Thai prison, he's sitting there, like, watching races, and he, there he was. And I was like, fuck, there's my father. And he was like, fuck, there's my son. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, different, to say the least. Mm. And uh, there's chemistry of bio biological acceptance between father and son. Yes. And my first thing was, well, I'm taller than you, man. <laughs> 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 and I was really happy about that. <laughs> and he came That's back good. with something just as witty, you know, and yeah. it was like, ah, oh, there's my old man. You know, there's this. we, we had yes. something that was very similar, which was, we have a good sense of humour and we can see the lighter side of things, but underneath it, he was damaged. You know, he was tapping his toe relentlessly under the table and, you know, he's just... He was a mess and he was very anxious to see me. But, um, 
you know, that was when I was 16. I'm, I'm now 44 and he passed away last January and a lot of shit went down in between that time. Mm. And, you know, he continued taking drugs and he, he just didn't bounce back out of the prison. You know, like you talk about PTSD and, you know, he, he went through a world of shit, but so did a lot of other people. Mm. You know, my grandparents went to war. You know, mm. imagine seeing people blow up all the time. You yes. Know, like, so I never copped it as a son. Sure. You know, I can... You know, I forgave him for making a terrible mistake when I was a child, um, not having a father. Yes. So be it. That's yep. cool. I can live with it. Yeah. You know, but he never came back and never tried to straighten his affairs out or mm. be a better man or try to be a father. Did he ever go and, like, on his own accord, go and get counselling and try and deal with these demons? No, he went and got cocaine and yeah. bloody drugs and hung out with the wrong people and gambled. So you must have been looking at him thinking, at nine years old, I, I manned up. I stood on my own two feet as hard as it was. Yeah. was broken inside at my age, and I, I did it. Mm. I did it. You can't even do it, and you're a grown man. It took me a long time, and look, I, I don't want to try to judge other people's experiences. Sure. You know, especially my father's too. Like, I, I can write about it and talk about it, but you know, I, I wasn't there. I didn't see it through his eyes or his capable, like those mechanisms you talk about. Like, he, he wasn't resilient. Like, he wasn't... Mm as strong as some others. Yes. I'm not saying myself, but yes. you know, he, he didn't deal with things in a way that I would have liked him to deal with it, but mm. you know, that was his life. Yes. Um, you know, I was very determined, and I think I, I, the strength, not just from my grandfather and my mother, it was from my own, this is not happening to me, and I'll prove the world differently from word go. Yeah. You know, and I had to do this. Yes. And that's gone now, he's died. So I don't... Like, I feel different. I don't need to prove anything to anyone anymore about any of it. It just slid into me where I just no, no longer needed to impress myself, let alone anyone else. It was like, I don't need to fight that battle anymore because I don't need to prove to my father or to myself to be a better person or, or try to be successful. Like, famous jockey grandfather. My father was infamous. It's bloody hugely famous from his book, which I hated because yes. that was wrong to me. None of us got any recognition, but we didn't want it. You know, there's a whole lot of complexity there, which messes with your head if you let it. But you just keep going through. Yeah. Do your laces up. <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. Fix That's your it. bed. <laughs> That's it. You know, catch yeah. up and realise that you've got good people in your life and, yeah. and that's fine. But to, but to ultimately answer your question, I mean, it was a waste, I think, you know, what could have been. My father and I could have had a father-son relationship. Yes. But it was never going to be. He wasn't and this capable. is the path that I live. And I'm grateful I've got an incredible mother who is like my best friend, but also someone who fought hard to make me who I am in a way, especially when I was younger. Mm. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. Yeah. So, yeah. There's good and bad in all things. Yeah, exactly. And if you can get to that point where you are, you look at the things that you can be grateful for. So I see with your dad, I'm thinking you excelled at sport. You threw yourself into sport um, as much to get through your hardships. But I reckon you threw yourself at sport to be good at sport as well to say, look at me, dad, look at me. My dad's not looking at me. He's mm. not proud of me. He can't see me. Mm. So when you're saying this just six weeks ago, this presence of mind to say, I don't need to prove anything to anyone. I don't have to show anyone anymore. Look at me, I'm good. I'm, I'm a good kid. That's right. I'm a good boy. 
yeah. you don't need anyone's approval. But no. it was, it's, it's a very, very strange thing, isn't it? Because ultimately, yeah. we're always often trying to prove ourselves to someone, mm. possibly to a father figure. Mm. It might be a father figure within our own self that we're pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and it's like, no, no, you are enough. You're enough. I'm enough. We've always been enough. Completely. But how can we get to that realisation? That's and, and you've had to go through all of this. Yeah. Your father's passing and you're at that realisation, which it's a huge blessing, Adrian. It is. It is. There was a lot of shit. I mean, I had to take on a lot. But I don't like to look at myself in that way. Like, what I go through is just what I go through. Sure. You know, no special case there. And I hate being treated as such. Yes. Because it isn't that way. It's <clears> like, who cares? Everyone goes yeah. through something. That's you said right. it to us before. We all go through something. All of us. We've all got a story. And we are talking earlier about how the best way to help someone is just by being genuine and honest and, and in the right way at the right time. Just explain how you feel. Right on. Without like going on or like having a purpose for it. It's yes. easy to go, oh, look at me. This has happened because now I want you to tell me you know, I'm a victim and support me and pressurise, you know, it's like crap, you know. Yeah. But if you're genuine and you just feel it, you can help people for our own experience. That's what makes us relatable and human to each mm. other because we need to share that. Yeah. You know, in the right way. Like men have a different way of doing it. Like I say, like my grandfather would be amazed that I'd be sitting here right now talking about this sort of stuff. He'd be like, don't air your dirty laundry to the world. Like, Keep a stuff. stiff upper lip. Don't. What you're doing is... You know, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> but I'm taller than him as well. So sorry. <laughs> Adrian, it's been, mate, it's been such a pleasure and a privilege having you on. And there's so much I know that you've said that it does, doesn't only resonate with me, but it resonate, it'll resonate with our listeners. I guarantee it 100%. Before you go, it's a question we ask everyone here. Now, thinking about the place you're at now, the, where you're living now, the headspace you're in now, the presence, the gratitude you've got now, what or who inspires you? That's a really hard question mm. to answer because, you know, in the past I looked at different role models or mm. people that did inspire me on a different sphere, whether it be a sportsman. I was adored Steve Waugh, for example, mm. looking up to a man like him or mm. different phases. Might have been an actor or someone who had a really nice presence about themselves and. So I always like sort of styled myself on on different people that I, I thought was um, how I would like to see myself mm. within my own character. Yes. But now, like as I just mentioned, that I feel like I'm I'm a blank canvas in in a way, and it's again I hate the cliches, but I can now look for new inspiration. Beautiful. And I think what really I I, I feel the most is I'm just really like this sounds like ridiculous in a way, but. I love other people's stories as well. Mm. And, and now I identify, I've been caught up in my own head with just getting through. And there's a lot we haven't talked about with the mental health side of things with my old man and you know, drug addictions with him mm. and shit. But um, you get caught up in so much. And recently I've just met people that just have equally cool stories to tell mm. in such a different like area in life. So I'm finding just everyday people inspiring. Mm. And I think... It's interesting, you know, I said before, and I won't go on too much, but the guy who cremated my father, um, I picked up my old man's ashes, which was just crazy, bizarre, it happens to us all, but it was because mm. he, he was like this invisible presence in my life and mm. wasn't physical for a long time, and then I picked up his ashes and they were really heavy. I thought, you 
fat bastard. Right <laughs> anyway, he's still causing me stress. Yeah, I mean, come on, man. He's, he's still, still hard asked work. to get a weight, man. <laughs> but um, anyway, so I had to pay the the cremation, but through my father's accounts and all this stuff you deal with with wills and things. Anyway, so I had to take the check in a week later to the, the guy who facilitated the service. And I w- walked in there and he's like, oh, and he was this big sort of army looking dude. He was like probably in his 60s, very fit, kind of strong, very like together. Mm. And um, he's like, oh, what do you do? And I said, oh, I've written a few stories, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, shit. He goes, are you good? What about? And I said, oh, about, oh, you know, my wife and family and a novel and stuff. He goes, oh, what's your family story? And I said, oh, I'll bet my father, he wrote The Damage Done. He spent 12 years in the Thai prison. He goes, get out of here. I said, what, what, what? He goes, I used to be one of Australia's top federal police officers and customs agents. I thought a bit sick in my head, but I thought, they got him again in the end. Yeah. They cremated him. Yeah. Which was weird. Yes. And I'm not trying wow. to make a joke out of something that's of death or whatever, but he then went on to just talk about his like crazy life working as a Fed, raiding like drug dealers, wow. taking down pedophiles, just a life full on of extreme sort of action, which depicted like a you know Hollywood movie. Yes. And so I thought that's when it's this is why I'm answering your question this way. It was like I looked at him and went, Fuck I'm ordinary. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Excuse my French, but Brilliant. Yeah, and then I thought, well God, there's just so much out there. Yeah. With people. Yep. So much yeah. content for you to put into your new TV series <laughs> oh, yeah. upcoming on Netflix. Well, hopefully, or Amazon. Yeah. If you're listening, Amazon. Adrian Simon has written two books, Milk Blood and Unbreaking the Girl, which is loosely based around his mother's life. Both these books, as well as The Damage Done by Adrian's late father, Warren Fellows, are available at most bookstores. All three books are definitely worth your time. I'd like to thank Adrian for joining me at the Inspired Podcast. He was honest, raw and vulnerable. If you are enjoying Inspired, let your friends know about us. Don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. In our next episode... I talk to the legendary singer Vince Contarino, whose voice and story will truly inspire you. I'm Nick Jones, and this is Inspired. Thanks for listening to the Inspired Podcast. Burn fat and get in shape using Gentech Nutrition's premium quality fat burners. Use code INSPIRED10 and save 10% off your favourite products at gentech.com.au. That's G-E-N hyphen T-E-C This podcast has been produced by etales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au. 